My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be preaching from that text that was just read. So feel free to turn your Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, um, we have Bibles in the back, round tables. You can get up now and grab one, or at any time during the service and take it home with you. I got a question for you. What comes to mind when you hear the word smug? Or maybe who comes to mind? Self-satisfied, self-congratulatory, complacent, superior, pleased with oneself, conceited, smug. I'll tell you who comes to mind for me. It's Hans Christian Andersen. Um, you may remember him. He, he wrote uh, in the 19th century what we call children's stories. He wrote The Ugly Duckling. He wrote The Emperor's New Suit. Um, but as a parent myself now, I've, I've revisited some of what we call children's stories. And I've looked at the actual story, not the Disney version. And I've realized that they're actually much darker than I remembered. Um, and they don't seem sometimes fit for children. But I, I don't think of Hans Christian Andersen because I think he was a smug man. I think he was a man who hated smugness. And that's why he wrote the Ugly Duckling story. And that's why he wrote The Emperor's New Suit. Do you remember that story? Do you remember the, the actual version of that story? There was an emperor who always loved um, to be in his dressing room. He had a different suit for every hour of the day, and he loved to be the most well-dressed person in his kingdom. And so I think I had always remembered him as, uh, as one who was vain, smug maybe, but primarily vain, until I reread the story and I heard about these two swindlers that came to town and they said, we have this magic cloth, this really expensive cloth, and we can make a suit for you. And it wasn't just that the suit was really expensive or extravagant, it's that the suit had this magical power. Anybody who saw the suit or looked at the suit, you could actually test something about that person. See, the cloth that this suit was made from could tell if you were stupid or not. It could tell if you were fit or not. If you could see the cloth, then that meant that you were fit for your office. And if you could not see the cloth, then it meant that you were stupid and unfit. And this is what the emperor said in the original story. He said, if I were to be dressed in a suit made of this cloth, I should be able to find out which men in my empire were unfit for their places, and I could distinguish the clever from the stupid. See, that was his motivation, to judge, to look at other men and say, I can just wear this suit and tell who is stupid and who is clever. And you know how the story goes. He sends in his most trusted, clever advisor, his oldest friend. Surely this man can test the cloth and tell me what the suit is going to be like. And that man goes in to where the, the con men are pretending to weave and pretending to sew and, and work through this cloth that's so light you can't even feel it. You can't even hold it. Um, when you hold it up, it just feels so light. You can't tell that you're holding anything. 
And they said, look, you see the patterns here? Look at this. And of course, the old honored friend and advisor could not see anything. And he thought, am I unfit for my office? Am I stupid? I can't be unfit. So I've got to go back and tell the emperor how wonderful this suit is. And that happened again and again and again until finally the con men stayed up all night putting the finishing touches on this suit. And they encouraged the emperor to have a parade to show off his new suit. And everyone who had seen the progress came back to the emperor and told them what a wonderful suit it was because no one wanted to be unclever and stupid and unfit for their office. And finally the day came and the emperor himself walked in to see what this suit was like and he saw nothing. And he thought to himself, I am the emperor. I can't be unfit for my office. If, if the emperor is unfit for the office, what does that say about the rest of the kingdom? Because I'm the most clever man here. So I can't be unfit. I've got to go along with it. And so he puts on this invisible suit after undressing until he was completely naked. He puts on this invisible suit and admires the quality of the materials and looks at himself in the, in the mirror and thinks how good he looks in this suit. And he thinks that everyone else is going to see him looking so magnificent because maybe everyone else can see this cloth except for me. And so he goes on his procession and he makes a parade throughout the city and everyone is exclaiming how wonderful his suit is because everyone knows that the magic quality of this suit can tell you whether you're clever or stupid. So if, if I'm clever, then I can see the suit and I see nothing. I don't want to be stupid. So they're praising how wonderful he is. And there's men walking behind him holding the train of this lightweight material that they cannot see or feel. And then finally, a little boy in the crowd looks up and says, he's naked. He's not wearing anything. And there's some like nervous laughter. And then everyone realizes we've been duped. We've been conned. He is naked. And, and in the original story, the emperor is in the parade and the boy exposes him and the whole city sees that the emperor's new suit is nothing. He's naked. Now, in the mind of Hans Christian Andersen, that young boy is a hero, right? Because he is exposing the smugness of the emperor. What if you had a friend that knew you so well that understood how your brain works. They understood your personality. They knew when you were lying. They knew when you were telling the truth. What if you had a friend that just gets you, could see you for who you truly are? Wouldn't you want a friend like that to show you what they see? Don't you want that little boy to, to tell you what your blind spots are and to show where you've been deceived as well? I think we all want someone to see us for who we are and to show us what they see. Now, I know we want this because of the popularity of personality tests and diagnostics, right? Somebody, give me a test. 
Give me the Enneagram. Give me the Myers-Briggs. Give me the Harry Potter quiz. Whatever it is, I want to know who I am. I want somebody to tell me who I am because I don't know. I also know that we want this because in the secrecy of my office, people tell me all the time, I don't know who I am. Can you tell me who I am? People of all ages, not just people in their 20s, people of all ages, I don't know who I am. I want to know. And I know we want this because I want this. I want someone to tell me what they see to show me what they see. And I want it to be somebody who actually knows me, who understands me. And I don't think we just want this. I think we actually need it. I think we need it. I think that, that we can do enough introspection and we can take retreats and we can make, do all these activities to find ourselves, but we actually need someone outside of us to tell us who we are. We need someone, we need a friend, we need a community to tell us who we are. And in this passage, and in fact in all these letters to some extent, um, as we've gone through the letters to different churches in the book of Revelation, especially this letter, they're telling us that Jesus is that friend. Jesus is the one who knows us better than we know ourselves and who's actually a good enough friend to tell us what he sees. And that's what he does to the Laodiceans in this passage. And here's the problem, though. When, when someone knows you and sees you and tells you what they see, sometimes it's painful. Um, what we're going to see in this passage is the severe kindness of the Lord. Because he sees the Laodiceans and he shows them what he sees. He sees who they are. He sees who they could be. He sees how to get there. And what he shows them is, we're going to look at these three points. He shows them their condition he shows them their cure, and he shows them their calling. Let me pray as we do that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need you to show us who we are this morning. We need you to teach us your word, and we pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth here this morning and the meditation of all our hearts here together will be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Jesus sees them, sees the church the Christians in Laodicea, he sees them for who they really are, and he shows them their condition. Um, and, and they are flawed, sinful people like us. And so you might have heard when, when Joyce read that, that sounded a little harsh. It sounded a little painful. Verse 15, he says, I know your works. I see you. You are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm. Ouch. Nobody wants a lukewarm lover or a fair weather friend or an apathetic partner. And Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. What's that about? Well, if we um, want to understand this passage, we have to understand a little bit about the city of Laodicea, as we have in every letter. Um, realize that we have to understand the context. And one of the things you'll see if you're looking at a map of Laodicea is that they're, about, uh, they're, they're between two cities. They're about 10 miles from the city of Colossae, which we know from the book of Colossians. 
and they're six miles from the city of Hierapolis. And those two cities were known for two things. Um, Colossae had cold springs and Hierapolis had hot springs, but Laodicea had no springs. And so they had to pipe in this water six to 10 miles to get to the city. And by the time they, that water got to the city, because it was far from its source, it was lukewarm. And um, it actually flowed over the aqueducts and, and, and ancient historians have painted this beautiful picture of water flowing and glistening in the sun, and yet the water itself, as beautiful as it was, was undrinkable. It was, um, in addition to being lukewarm, it was also, um, it had calcium deposits, and it had minerals in the water that if, you, that if you didn't settle, let it settle before you drank it, it was emetic. And what emetic means is that it induces vomiting. And so... This water looked beautiful, but if you drink it, it makes you sick. It's not cold. It's not hot. It's lukewarm. And so Jesus is using the context of their water, and he's saying, you're just like the water in your city. You're far from your source. You're not hot. You're not cold. Yeah, I would travel for hot water. I would travel for cold water, but I don't want lukewarm water. And just like the water that induces vomiting, I actually want to spit you out. I want to spit you out because you're, you're lukewarm and apathetic. He says, you know how to look spiritual on the outside, but I see not the outside, I see the inside as well. See, maybe to us, he would, he would say to Christians today, you know how to look spiritual. You know how to raise your hands in worship. You know where to put that Jesus fish to, to signal to everyone else that you're a Christian. You know where, when to hide that fish. Um, when it's a liability. You have Christian books on your shelf and your coffee table, some that you've even read. Um, you send your, Christ, your kids to Christian schools. You listen to Christian music, but your hearts are sick, and it makes me sick because I want more for you. He doesn't stop there in verse 17. He actually gives a reason for their apathy and their lukewarmness. In verse 17, he says, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city, and they knew it, and they flaunted it, there were, of course, other pagan gods in the city, but, but they, didn't, they didn't put a lot of stock in those other gods. The god of Laodicea was money. See, here's the thing uh, about money. It, it makes a great god. It makes a great idol. You know, Zeus and Artemis are capricious, and they're fickle, but money works. Money delivers. Money opens doors. And the Laodiceans knew it. They were a city that were, that they were known for their commerce. They were known for their banking. They were great capitalists. They even had on their coins, um, some cities had an image of their god. In Laodicea, they had the image of a cornucopia, like Thanksgiving, an image of how blessed they were, an image of their abundance and their wealth. 
That's right. We talked about family last week, and today we're talking about money. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, Laodicea, in fact, if you broke down the words, they were named after uh, their founder's wife in 250 BC. But if you broke down the words of Laodicea, what you'd find is that laos means people and Dike means decision. And if you put that together, it means the people rule. The people make their decisions. The people are self-reliant. And they were self-reliant. They were so self-reliant, in fact, that you may remember from, from, other, uh, from past weeks how there were earthquakes in this region. And not once, but twice, earthquakes hit Laodicea. And instead of Philadelphia, instead of the Philadelphians where Um, they received aid from the empire and took the name of Caesar and changed the name of the city. Laodicea actually refused aid. They said, we don't want the tax break. We've got the money. We can build it ourselves." They did it twice. Each time they rebuilt their city and they financed it themselves. And they got rich um, for for a few reasons. In addition to to banking, they're also known for two products, and Jesus mentions both of, both of them in this passage. They were known for this really high-quality black wool that you could make these amazing black garments with. And they were also so known for this school of medicine that treated blindness. And they were known for this balm, this product called Phrygian powder. It was a medicine to treat blindness and to protect the eyes. So let me read it for you again, Jesus' words to the church there. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes after their civic pride. You're not wealthy, you're poor. You don't have this magic healing power for the eyes, you're blind, and you don't have these amazing garments, you're naked. They were wearing the emperor's new suit, in other words, and Jesus is the boy who's crying out, you're naked. They were smug. They were smug. They saw themselves as superior to others, and yet they were naked and pitiable and wretched. So they weren't just smug, they were self-deceived. They worshipped the idols, the gods of money, self-reliance, and commerce, and money will give you great comfort. And that's what caused their spiritual apathy. That's what caused the church, the apathy of the church here in Laodicea. Under great wealth, they became comfortable, and under comfort, they became apathetic. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Um, It should. If you get a little bit hot under the collar when you're reading this and when you're hearing this, then that just means that you're paying attention. In fact, if you open any commentary in the past like 100 years, um, they're going to look at this passage and they're going to say, Laodicea is the Western church, or specifically the American church. We are overly comfort and proud and smug about who we are as American Christians. And we know how to put on the images on the outside to look more spiritual than we really are. But in the inside, we are lukewarm. Um, An Anglican pastor and theologian 
named John Stott, he put it this way. He says the Laodicean, he's talking about the church in the West. He says the Laodicean church was a half-hearted church. Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath. Do you identify with Laodicea? I do. I know how easy it is for us to put our security and our money and our own ability to work hard and to overcome. We work hard to get all our stuff, and when our stuff is in danger, what do we do? We insure it. We buy more things. We buy insurance to protect ourselves. We buy a security system to keep it safe. We buy a gun to keep ourselves safe. Or we put some money in a mutual fund and save for a rainy day. Or we find a job that pays more so we can be safe. We have to save money so that we can mitigate risk. And we wag our fingers at those who don't. We know the God of comfort. We know the God of money, the false God of money, the idol of money. And we know that it works. We know that it opens doors. We know that it gives us many of the things that we want. In fact, the thing about that makes money such a great idol, because instead of success or image or beauty or security or comfort or any of those other things, the idol of money actually give, if, if you worship the idol of money, you get all those other ones thrown in. Money is like the queen idol that, that opens the doors and, and gives you access to the other things that you worship. And so um, a Presbyterian missionary named Francis Schaeffer put it this way as he described the Western um, worldview and the Western church. He said that the Western worldview is founded upon two principles, personal peace and affluence. And he says, no matter if you subscribe to that or if you reject it, that is still the worldview that's underneath. And what, what happens is that it leads to apathy. When our gods are personal peace and affluence, it leads to apathy. It leads to Laodiceanism. It leads to being lukewarm. Have you ever realized how money has the ability to make us compromise our ethics? We will throw away our ethics when it comes to political power or when it comes to getting cheaper products or better investment. Have you ever lied to get a discount? Those of you who are close to 65, maybe 62, but I can still get the, the senior discount on my coffee at McDonald's, right? I'll round up. Or maybe you're a young parent and you have a, a small two-year-old that could pass as an 18-month. He can, he can pass as an 18-month, right? And I can get the discount to say that my kids are under two. Um, we will sell our souls for a buck. We will sell our souls for a coupon. It does not take much for us to lie to get money. Um, 
Yes, it was Black Friday two days ago. Um, what does that say about us as a culture? What will we do to save money on a TV? I mean, people die on Black Friday. It's this like cruel, macabre theater that they say, here are a few cheap things. Whoever's the fastest and the fittest can, get, can have a TV too. And you can save 50 bucks if you buy it today. And so if you wait outside and you rush the doors and you fight over it, you too can have it. Isn't that crazy? And yet we kind of think it's normal. It kind of feels normal and fun, right? You know, my mom is a bargain hunter. And I mean that as a sport. Um, I come from a long line of bargain hunters And my mom tells these stories like war stories. She's like, I was at a yard sale and I saw it from across the yard. There was a George Foreman grill and it had a $20 sticker on it. And I got it for $5, $5. And now as I've gotten older, I've found myself, um, I've caught myself bragging about my bargains to other people. And when I'm like really savvy, I hold it in and just call my mom so I have someone to like (laughs) brag to because I know she'll appreciate it. Um, I recently heard someone who's not from America ask, why do you guys do that? You talk about money all the time. Even if it's the lower price, you still talk about how much you paid for things. I didn't know that that was a unique thing. It just felt normal. Now, there is a way for us to miss this. There's a way for us to miss this passage. And, and the way to miss it is to think, this is not me. This is for someone else. This is for another church. This is for those big churches with the rock bands and the, and the props on stage. They've compromised for money, but I haven't. This is for the materialistic people who've pursued wealth. But I actually don't have that much money. This can't apply to me. I'm an English major. Of course I didn't pursue money. And then every time you're looking for a job, I was a religious studies undergrad, probably more useless than English in, in uh, most situations. It comes back when you're looking for that job. If only I had majored in business. If only I had done something that could bring me wealth. And we tell our children the same thing, right? Pursue the safe route. See, the way we can miss this passage is if we think, I don't really have enough money to make it an idol. But you know, you can actually make it an idol if you don't have it. You can think, if I just had more, you know, if I had a three-bedroom apartment instead of a two-bedroom apartment, I'd be a lot happier. Many of you know I'm apartment hunting right now. If I just had a better car, I wouldn't be so anxious when I'm driving, when I see the check engine light come on. If I just had health insurance, I'd actually sleep better at night. See, we know that that money can actually bring us some comfort. So even if we don't have it, we're still subject to the God of money. 
we're still subject to the idol of comfort. This is the air we breathe. And sometimes we can look at these cultural idols in these letters and think that we start pure and then the outside world somehow corrupts us. But those of us who grew up here, we grew up with this God. We grew up going to the temples of the mall. We grew up hearing the gospel of money on commercials. We grew up with this. This is our native religion. Do you think that that it does not affect us? If you think it doesn't affect you, then you might be wearing the emperor's new suit. You might be missing it. But Jesus sees who we are. And he sees us when we're out shopping for the bargains, which is another way of saying, I don't have to have the money, but I still get the stuff. And he sees us when we're making decisions to get more money. He's seeing us when we're up at night shopping for something because we know that it feels really good to buy something. And it may actually turn down the anxieties a little bit. See, he knows that personal peace and affluence are the idols that we struggle with. And he knows that it's killing us spiritually. So try this test. Where do you want to be in 10 years? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Is it your character? Is it, I want to be more generous in 10 years? Or is it, I want to be more financially stable? I want to have more things. See, Jesus sees us. He saw the Laodiceans. He saw their wealth. He saw their self-deception and their smugness, and he called it out. And he says, here's your problem. You've been duped. You think you're rich, but you're actually poor. You think you have great garments, but you're actually naked. You think you have great vision, but you're actually blind. They lacked the one thing that they needed, and that was nothing. They needed nothing. And fortunately, Jesus doesn't just write this letter to rebuke them. He writes this letter to give them the cure. He shows them their cure as well. Look at verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline So be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I discipline. That's not really the cure that I wanted. I didn't want to hear that discipline was the cure. Um, Chances are that word brings up some mixed feelings for you. Um, You probably hear the word punishment when you hear discipline. And usually in our families, the, the punishment doesn't always fit the crime. Maybe you were in a family that spanked or whipped, and it was mostly done in rage, spontaneously, with little thought, and likely excessive. Maybe your family didn't lay a hand on you, but you got a verbal lashing instead, and that even felt worse. Or maybe you had no need for discipline because you kept all the rules, or you were simply neglected. Rarely do we have a positive view of what discipline is. 
Um, and as a parent myself, discipline is difficult. It's hard. So when Jesus says that your cure is my discipline, that may not sound like good news to you. Um, but in fact, what I know is that as Christians, we have an interesting relationship to discipline. Um, some of you may have heard that word and thought, yes, yeah, we got to get, we need discipline. We need to get whipped into shape. Um, when I men- I've mentioned to a few pastors that I was preaching this sermon, they're like, yeah, the Laodicean church. It's the one everybody wants to preach. I'll spew you out of my mouth. It's the American church. I've had people tell me, um, as a pastor, as a preacher, I just want you to spit the flames. I want to be punched in the face with my sin. Or I want my sin to be punched in the face. As if somehow, if we could just beat the sin out of us, then we'd be holy. If we could just batter our conscience, then maybe we'd, we'd live better. We'd do the right thing. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he just trying to batter our conscience here in this passage? Well, our relationship to discipline is curious to me. Um, I wonder if it's just another way for us to be self-reliant. Another way for us to say, no pain, no gain. I'll do the time. I'll put myself into like a spiritual CrossFit gym and, um, a, or a Tough mutter race which is for like really weird people. Um, and, I, and I'll let Jesus batter my conscience so then I'll, I'll want to do more. But Jesus does not discipline as we do. He does not discipline in all the broken ways that you are disciplined, all the painful ways. Um, I, th- I think sometimes we forget that discipline, when we think of the discipline of the church or the discipline of the Lord, that it's not punitive it's restorative. It's not just doled out to punish. It's true discipline is meant to restore and to bring someone along. In fact, um, the, the author, the um, writer Dan Siegel, who's written on discipline, reminds us what discipline actually is. He says, too often we forget that discipline really means to teach, not to punish. That's the the root of the word, that's the etymology of the word discipline, is to teach. And he says a disciple is not a, a disciple is a student, not a recipient of behavioral consequences. See, discipline is instruction. It's correction. It's the discipline of the Lord is him coming alongside his disciples and teaching them. And that's why he begins this passage with saying, let me counsel you. Let me show you. And so the way to get out of spiritual apathy and self-deceit, the way to repent from worshiping the God of money is to come to Jesus' feet, to bow down and submit yourself to him and say, teach me. I can't do this myself. We have to give up our self-reliance and say, Jesus, this has got to be your work. I, I don't even know how to repent without you. And in fact, he promises to teach us. And, and that's why he says, I will counsel you to buy from me this purified gold and these white garments. Buy from me. Now, you have to laugh when he said that because to this like culture that's obsessed with commerce, he says, all right, here's the answer. You got to go shopping. You got to buy something else, but you got to get it from me and I'll give it to you for free. 
And so for us, what this means is that we have to be submitting ourselves to Jesus and saying, Lord, I, I don't even know how to repent. I don't even know the ways that, that money and comfort and personal peace and affluence have affected me. Will you show me? Will you teach me? See, if you go about it in just another way of something else you have to do, chances are you'll only ever be lukewarm. But the way to love God and be loved by him is to submit to his teaching and let him teach you. And what you see is that his discipline is done out of love, not out of spite. And what you'll see when he teaches you is that he is calling you to something better. Because when he sees us as we are, he also sees how we could be. And he shows them their calling. Verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. See, when Jesus starts this passage in this really graphic way of like spitting them out of his mouth, he ends the passage with this beautiful calling, this beautiful invitation. And what you see is that he is writing to them. He is rebuking them not to drive them away, but actually to bring them near. He says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Open the door. I want to come in. I want to eat with you. I want to sit at your table. His love and his invitation is not just for the victorious church. It's for the defeated church as well. His love and his invitation is even for money-obsessed American Christians. The invitation is even for us. And this is what we have to see. Even with the harsh words, he wants the Laodiceans. He wants them. He desires to be in fellowship with them, and he wants us. He wants to come in and sit at our table and dine with us. And you know that eating was such a social activity in those days. That's why Jesus always got in trouble for eating with sinners, with the wretched, the pitiable, the blind and the lame, the poorly clothed. See, when you hear that, that list of things, when Jesus says, you're blind, you're wretched, you're naked, you're poor, those are actually the people that Jesus wants to eat with. Those are the people that he gathers to his table. And he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking if you'll just admit your need, if you'll just admit that you're naked and poor and blind, I will come in and I will eat with you. See, he is ready to forgive. He is a God who wants us to repent because he's a jealous God. And he desires a monogamous, committed relationship with us. He wants a fiery romance. And so don't miss out on that. That's the irony of this table. You don't get to eat with Jesus for being good. You get to eat with Jesus by admitting your failures. So do you remember how the emperor's new suit ends? The whole city realizes that the emperor is naked. And so what does he do? Does he blush? Does he get embarrassed and hide, run for cover? No, he actually doesn't. It says in the story that he finished the parade 
to the bitter end because he could not believe. He could not believe that he had been duped. Don't be like the emperor. Admit your nakedness. Admit it. Humble yourself before the Lord's loving discipline. Let him teach you and realize that his death and his resurrection, he actually paid for all your sins, even the sins of spiritual lukewarmness and even the sin of finding and worshiping the God of comfort. Jesus is the friend that sees us for who we are, who shows us who we are, shows us who we could be, and beckons us, standing at the door knocking, beckons us to open the door and to let him in. I'll end with this quote from uh, one of my favorite hymns. It was written by a native Indian named Ellen Lakshmi Gora, in the secret of his presence. When you come near the Lord, when he comes in, to eat with you. He also shows you your sin and he forgives you. And she wrote this. She said, one thing I know, I tell him all my doubts, my griefs, my fears. Do you think he never reproves me? What a false friend he would be if he never told me of the sins which he must see. He sees us and he is the faithful and true witness. He is the amen. And he shows us what he sees, and that's for our good. It's the gospel. Amen.